1: Hey folks, Dr. Tim Jordan back here with a new episode of Raising Daughters, and today I want to talk about what I think is probably one of those kids who lives in your home who is really tough to parent. One of those strong, powerful, spirited, independent-minded, intense kids that's always been a challenge for you. Like for instance, I heard about this little 10-year-old girl one time who was uh, the uh, oldest of Five kids and she was constantly fighting with her younger siblings and one day her and her younger sister were fighting her mom came in yelling at them and her mom said alright who started it this time and this little girl looked at her mom and she said you started it when you had so many kids (laughs) that's one of those spirited kids when I see girls in my counseling practice who fit that bill I like to describe them as being like a wild colt being stuck in a corral, and running around, kicking at the slats, trying to get out, trying to get some freedom, wanting to have more, more say-so in their life. And some of those kids are young. I mean, you can see it in the early going. In infancy, you can see it in them. I read a book um, several years ago. Well, actually, longer than that. It was called The Soul's Code. S-O-U-L apostrophe S, code, C-O-D-E, by James Hillman. It's a really fascinating book. And he, he basically says that kids have an unconscious knowing of what life is going to bring them. And sometimes we'll see behaviors in childhood that we label as abnormal or weird or whatever. But in reality, it's just a foreshadowing of who they may become. We're only seeing an acorn in front of us, and we can't yet see the oak tree. One of my dear friends, Ginny Luther, is writing a book, and she let me preview it. It's a book about her son, Bart who was a very spirited, very intense kid. One of the most intense kids I think you ever, you'd ever want to meet. And she remembers when he was about four or five years of age. He was very verbal, very precocious. He was a risk taker. He was out there. And she said to him one... And he said to her, I'm sorry, one time, when he was about four or five years of age, he said, Mom, I don't think I'm going to live very long. Which startled her mom. And she said, What, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. He said, But I... Just have this feeling that I'm not going to live to be older, and sure enough, unfortunately, Bart joined the army, and he did one tour in Iraq. Came back and was okay. He was he was an incredible soldier, a leader, a commander of a of a a battalion, not a battalion, but like a platoon. We came back. He was in the states in Texas, in between you know you know his tours of duty. And he was called because somebody in his, his platoon was talking out of, of their heads and they were worried about him. They said, why don't you go to his apartment and check him out? And to make a long story short, he went there. This guy was deranged. He was out of his head. And he shot Bart. Shot him five times in the head and killed him. He was killed in the line of duty in the, on U.S. soil. Very sad. Very, very sad. But... um. And her book will be coming out, hopefully, in the next year. I'll let you know in a podcast when it comes out. Uh, but he was one of those kids who had a, a knowing. He just had a knowing when he was young that was good, that about what his life was going to entail. In The Soul's Code, there's a story about Gandhi, who was this little short, thin, sickly, ailing, frightened little boy. He was always afraid of things. He was afraid of snakes and ghosts, and especially he was afraid of the dark. He was afraid of invisible presences and, and, the, and, and the, being afraid of the dark because he thought, I think, in his mind, unconsciously, he had a sense of growing up and being imprisoned and being in solitary confinement for months and years at a time. And James Hillman, in his book Souls Cold, says he had a premonition. He had a sense of what his life was going to entail. And even though his young, little five year old boy couldn't explain that, there was a knowing. There's, this, there's a renowned violinist, Yehudi Menuhin, who before the age of four, he was three years of age, went to a concert one time to hear this violinist, Luis Persingerdo, And he said during one performance, he turned to his parents as a three-year-old, and he said, I want a violin for my fourth birthday. And I want that man, Luis, to teach me how to play it. So his family gave him a violin for his birthday. There was, it was a metal violin with metal strings, you know, like a cheap kid's one. And he said, I remember I burst into sobs. I threw myself on the floor. I threw the violin on the floor. I would have nothing more to do with it. He wanted to have the real thing because he said, I knew at that moment in my life, I knew instinctively that to play the violin was to be for me. Barbara McClintock, a pioneering geneticist at age five remembers asking her dad for a set of tools. She liked working with her hands, she liked building things. But her dad didn't get her the set of tools that she wanted. She wanted a set of tools that an adult would have. Instead he got her tools for a kid, little tools that would fit in her little hands. She said, But those are not the tools that I want. I wanted the real thing. I wanted real tools, not tools for children. Because she already had some vision for herself that was full size, not kid-sized. I read a story about Peter Frampton, rock and roller, famous uh, guitar player, and he said his his career started when he was eight years of age in the Cub Scouts. He was working on his music badge and to get the badge at the end you had to perform in front of the troops and so he did. He got in front of the troop, he played a song and they were clapping, he got a big ovation And the scoutmaster came up and said, okay, time to get off, and he refused. And he turned to the audience, he said, since you liked me so much, I would like to do one of my own compositions. He said, he refused to get off the stage until he could play his own composition. And he said, I was shy, I was introverted, but I knew I could do one thing really well. And I did have courage. He said, that's what the guitar did for me. It was like my sword. He said, right then and there, He said, when I had the stage, no one could tell me what to do once I was out there and communicating with the audience. He said, you've got the stage and that's it. He said, I learned very early on that that's where I'm most happy. No one comes on and tells you what to do. It's the music and the audience. And by now I'm realizing that I enjoy playing in front of other people. I love that part of his quote that said, no one comes on and tells you what to do. This is one of those. Powerful, spirited kids who had a sense of what he wanted. He was going to go after it. He had a hard time with the, uh, with the answer, no, as I'm sure some of your kids do. Pablo Picasso, favorite, fam- famous painter, left school at the age of 10 because he stubbornly refused to do anything but paint. That's one of those tough kids. Woody Allen says, the comedian, he said, I paid attention in school to everything except the lectures and the teachers. They put him in an accelerated class because he had a very high IQ, but they wouldn't allow him to express himself, and so he became a troublemaker. He played hooky. He wouldn't do his homework. He was disruptive in class. He was rude to his teachers, who then lowered his grades for all those things because all he wanted to do, all he did was write jokes and make films and be funny. The famous actress Betty Davis remembers being seven years old and she was doing a school play, and she was playing Santa Claus. And during the, the play, she bumped into the real candles on the Christmas tree on stage, because back in that day, they had real candles, not the fake lights, and her Santa outfit caught on fire. And so she was screaming in terror, and one of the teachers ran up and wrapped her in a huge rug to put the fire out. And as her rug was being, being very carefully taken off, she said, I remember I decided to keep my eyes closed and to make believe I was blind. And people started crying, oh my God, she's blind, her eyes. And she said she remembered a shudder of delight went through her. She said, I was in complete command of that moment. That's what she liked about being an actress. So, if you have one of those kids in your home, strong-minded, powerful, spirited, doesn't like, no, wants to forge their own path, has their own interests, etc., etc., let me give you some suggestions about how you might parent them so that they can be themselves and become empowered and to channel all that, but not to squish their spirit. I see a lot of kids whose spirits get squished. They get labeled as being too much, too loud, too out there, too bossy. They get labeled as being oppositional defiant disorder. I've seen kids like that get medicated for it. When in reality, they just were a spirited kid who needed outlets. So that's first and foremost for these kids, they need outlets for their creativity, their power and their independent spirits. So there's a dance you need to create with these kids. The dance where you have to give them enough rope, enough choices, enough decision making so they can feel like they're in control but also keep them safe. Yeah, let them make mistakes. And let them fail, maybe learn from their, their mistakes and failures, but not the kind of mistakes that would be life-threatening or, you know, too much. So there's this line that you have to sort of walk with them to let them grow and let them be independent and let them, you know, make those mistakes and take risks, etc., without them being hurt too badly. I remember my son TJ, he was our middle child and our most intense spirited child in that way. I remember when he was about two, maybe three years of age. We would drive the car into the driveway, park the car. We'd get out, and then we'd open up the back door for him to get out, and he would throw himself down on the back seat and start screaming and having a temper tantrum. And we realized it was because we had the audacity to open the door for him, and he wanted to open it himself. So instead of fighting him, we were like, great. So from that day forward, we would pull in the driveway, Stopped the car, we get out, and we'd let him get out on his own, open his own door, close the door, walk in the house, and he was happy as a clam. No, no struggles from that day forward, going into the house. One time at breakfast, he said he wanted cereal, so I we, we poured him a bowl of cereal, poured the cereal in, poured the milk, put it in front of him. He took the bowl, I'll never forget this, he kind, of, he kind of pushed it across into the middle of the table, and he then he kind of threw himself under the table, grunting stupid, you know, grunting and upset and having a little fit. And we realized that the problem was, wasn't that he was rude. It wasn't that he was oppositional to find disorder. The the problem was he wanted to do it himself. So he said, great. And from that day forward, he would come to the kitchen. He would pull this big chair. This is like a four or five-year-old. Pull this big chair up against the counter. He would climb up on the chair, climb up on the counter, grab his bowl, bring it down. He would pour his bowl of cereal. He'd take that gallon jug of milk and he'd pour the milk in and he would sit down and eat breakfast. And he was, again, happy as a clam because he was doing it himself, his way on his terms and uh, on his time. So it's important that we look at at these kids and, and we see the oak tree when all we have in front of us is the acorn. We need to see them in their highest light to see, to try and foresee how this is going to be such a positive thing for their lives, even if sometimes in those little moments it looks kind of not so great. Again, that's the acorn on the oak tree thing. So, are you seeing your children or one of your kids in these stories yet? If not, I've got a bunch more really good stories. And the first one involves a little girl, a little girl, Golda Meyer, who, when she was in fourth grade in Milwaukee. She became upset because the school passed this new thing where they were going to require everybody to buy these expensive books, school books. And she realized as a fourth grader that it was going to be too expensive for the poor kids to get these books. And so so she realized they're going to be denied equal opportunity to learn. That really bothered her. So she organized a protest group against this required purchase of school books. And she actually on her own rented a hall to stage a meeting She raised funds. She gathered a group of girls and adults. And once they were there, she walked to the stage, at the center of the stage, to address them. Before that moment, her mom had pushed her to write her speech out, just to read it, because she said, you're going to forget. And Golda refused, because she said, it made more sense to me to just say what I wanted to say. The speech was already in my head. I wanted to speak from my heart. And she did. Golda Meyer's mom had a hard time letting go, apparently. She also had her own vision of Golda, because in the Indian culture, at that time in history, uh, she was supposed to get a job when she was, by the time she was 16, and even get married at a very young age, and, and Golda refused to follow that path. She had her own ideas, so she ran away from home at age 16 to live with her sister. Uh, her sister encouraged her to stay in school, to get an education, which she did. And uh, to make a long story short, if we fast forward, she was the person who led Israel during the 1973 War of Independence. She became the first female Labor Party Prime Minister of India. I'm sorry, of Israel, not India, of Israel. Amazing, powerful little girl, powerful woman. I met a man about eight or ten years ago at a father-daughter four-day retreat in California, then also met him again a year later at a father-son retreat. Interesting guy. I I love hearing people's stories. This is a very successful man. And he remembered, I asked him, you know, was there anything in your childhood that would have sort of told you about what what you're going to become? He said, actually, he remembered being about three years of age and his parents and especially his grandfather allowing him to take things apart. His grandfather would give him old clocks, uh, watches, all kinds of things because he liked working with his hands and he wanted to see how things worked. He remembers by the the time he was five and in kindergarten, his grandfather was letting him build things, hammer things. Even before school, he'd be working on things. He didn't let him solder things together with a soldering gun. He said he remembered going to school with burns on his arms from the soldering gun and his teachers giving him those funny looks like is this kid being abused or something. He also remembered attending 13 schools in 12 years. He said he felt like he didn't really quite fit in most of those years, because he kept entering new different kinds of school environments, so it forced him to become very observant, trying to see how things worked there, socially, at each of those schools. He said it made me kind of an observer, which ended up being a good thing for him in the long run. He still liked to take things apart, to see things from the inside out, and how things looked and worked, Um, and also kind of uh, building things. By the age of 14, he was creating and even selling software. By 14, he got a job as an adult, his first job working for Apple. He worked for Apple for 10 years, and he was a man who invented and created the teams that, that worked on and created the iPad, the iPod, and the iPhone. Amazing. Amazing, inventive, creative man. After 10 years, he decided to go out on his own, and he decided also that he wanted to invent something. Because he had traveled all over the world and everywhere he went, everywhere, all the thermostats looked the same. These ugly little boxes that were kind of beige. He said, "Why? they're everywhere. He said, we should be able to make something better than that. So he invented the nest. I bet a lot of you listening to this have a nest in your home. So he invented the nest because he saw a need that other people didn't. And he saw that through his observations all over the world. After three years, he had sold over three million. He sold to Google for 3.5 billion with a B dollars. <clears throat> Smart, bright, powerful kid uh, who was able to find a way to channel it. Another story, similar story, was about the comedian Louis C.K., who I always always loved his work. Uh, I don't like what he did Uh, Several years ago when he was caught or accused of doing some inappropriate sexual things, but he's always liked his comedy specials But he remembered as a little kid when he was one years of age. He moved to Mexico with his with his mom He lived there until he was seven or eight years of age And he said he always felt like he was on the outside looking in Because here's this pale white kid with with red hair living in Mexico, right? He stood out like a like a like a sore thumb But he learned to observe people because he was always on the outside and because he was different. And he said, it made me a very observant person. He had a single mom who worked long hours and they moved back to the States when he was about eight. He loved his mom, didn't want to disappoint her, but he he started going out with a rough crowd in middle school. He started smoking pot, did acid, all of his friends were into drugs. Um, He stopped for a while in ninth grade, but he restarted in 10th grade. And most of his friends dropped out, he said. uh, He got high in the morning before school. He would get high in the evenings. And his mom was really upset because he was uh, skipping school, going to school late. And so the school was worried about him and angry with him, too. So they called a meeting with the principal, his teachers, and his mom. He said, I've never seen my mom there looking exhausted and hurt because of my antics and they said what do you want what how can we help you i'm this is not working and he said i hate school i don't want to do this anymore so one of his teachers who liked him asked him what he wanted to do and he said i want to make movies and i want to make tv shows so this teacher said if i can find you something like that would you do it and and louis said of course." So this teacher found him an internship at a local access TV station where he learned to shoot and edit. He said, that teacher saved my life. He gave me a channel for my passion. I read that story in the Rolling Stone uh, magazine. I think it was in 2013. Uh, Another person who found someone who supported them, believed in them. And that's Jane Goodall. She remembers starting at around age eight, She started dreaming of living in Africa. As a little girl, she loved being outside. She loved to climb trees. She would climb trees to read books. She always daydreamed about life in the forest, with Tarzan and people like that. She discovered Africa in books first, and she decided that she was going to find a way to go there and live with animals and write books about them. She said she remembered as a little girl dreaming she was a man because she wanted to do things that only men could do, like go to Africa, work with animals, things like that. And she especially wanted to work with chimpanzees and be like Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan. Her mom supported her love of animals, even though most people told her to dream about things that you could actually achieve, because a woman, a woman is never going to be able to do what you want to do. She said, I wanted to go off to Africa at age 10, and everybody laughed at me. But my mom supported me, and she simply said to me, which I took to heart, if you really want something, you must be prepared to work very hard. Take advantage of all your opportunities and above all else, never, ever, ever give up. When Jane was around 12, her parents got divorced and college became a non-option because they had no money. So when she graduated from high school, she got jobs as a waitress. She had some secretarial jobs and she got a job as a secretary at Oxford University which reminds me of the movie um, with Matt Damon. Uh, Oh, what's it called? Oh, Goodwill Hunting, where where Matt Damon, who's this really bright guy, ends up being a janitor. And where does he end up being a janitor? Oh, at MIT, interesting. So Jane gets a job as a secretary at Oxford University, and she took full advantage of the campus educational life. By reading what the the students are reading, she would sneak into lectures, A friend invited her to go to Africa with her, and so she spent months saving her money. And on the boat ride over there, she made a commitment to herself that she was going to live in Africa no matter what. And she luckily got a chance to meet Dr. Leakey and his wife. And he loved her passion, and he hired her as his personal secretary. At age 26, she has no training, no scientific degree, no, no research to draw from, but Dr. Leakey wanted people who had open minds, who were patient, and had a love of animals. So he hired her to observe chimpanzees. And Jane Goodall says, once I was there, I knew I belonged to the forest, that that was where I was meant to be. But she knew that when she was eight, which is amazing, which is what a lot of these powerful people, these powerful kids are like. Another woman, let me tell you about her. Her name was Brute Mary Galdikas. She remembers living in Toronto that the first book she ever checked out of the library was a Curious George book. And she said, I was fascinated with George, but even more so, I was fascinated with the man in the yellow hat. And she decided she wanted to spend time with primates just like the man in the yellow hat. She checked out every Curious George book, and then she checked out every book on primates. And the one that she was most drawn to was the one who had human-like eyes. It was the orangutan. That's the one that caught her attention the most. And she knew at that point that she was born to work with these mysterious animals. She got out of high school, went to college. She studied zoology and psychology at UCLA. And surreptitiously, Dr. Lewis Leakey spoke at her school. He had already, at this time, chosen two female scientists to go into the wild and study primates. One was Diane Fossey, studying gorillas. The other, as I just mentioned, was Jane Goodall, studying chimpanzees. And Brute Mary Galdikas wanted to be the third researcher. So after the lecture, she approached Dr. Leakey. He agreed to give her an interview, and he saw her deep commitment and her passion. And he needed someone with that kind of commitment and passion to study orangutans. So he sent her and her husband off to a remote island the islands of Borneo and Sumatra, and most people doubted that she would ever see orangutans or be able to study them because they were such solitary, wild creatures. But, but, Brute Mary Gaudicus very slowly and patiently gained their trust. She recorded their every movement, their habits, and she published a series of articles in National Geographic about orangutans. And she developed Camp Leakey, which is now the top orangutan research and rehab center in the world. and She's worked there for about 45 years. And she became one of the three women that that are known as the Trimates, the founding mothers of primatology, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Brute Mary Gaudikis. Thank goodness those women had people who supported them. Another thing that I think these young, powerful people need, these young, powerful kids, is they need to be able to to solve their own problems, to be allowed to think for themselves and problem-solve. Let me give you an example. I met a, a dad one time, a very successful businessman, who remembers at the age of eight, wanting to make some money because he wanted to buy a Nintendo and his family, who had no, not much money, refused to pay for it. And so, he had, he had a female Doberman pincer and his friend had had a, a male, and so they bred them. It produced 13 puppies and they went to the next town and they sold each of the puppies for a $1,500 each and made about $20,000. So not only did this man, I'm sorry, this 8-year-old boy get to buy his Nintendo, he also learned I can make things happen. I can think for myself. I can problem solve. I'm not limited. Amazing lesson for an 8-year-old boy. And so I think a lot of those powerful kids who are living in your home also need a chance to make decisions, to have choices, sometimes it means making mistakes, sometimes it might mean failing, but at least they are on their own path making it happen. Another interesting story I found years ago. This one involved a lion. The lion was walking through the, the jungle and he came upon a flock of sheep and to his amazement he found a, a lion living amongst the sheep. Now This lion had been separated from her pride as a cub. And she was brought up by the sheep. So she would bleat like the sheep and she'd run around like the sheep because she thought she was a sheep. So the lion walked over to the sheep lion who trembled before the mighty beast. And the lion said, what are you doing amongst these sheep? And the sheep lion said, I'm a sheep. And the lion said, you are not a sheep. He said, come here, come with me. So he led this sheep lion to a pool of water. And he told her to look into the water. And when the sheep lion looked in at her reflection, a change came over her immediately and she let out a mighty roar and in that moment she was transformed and she was never the same again. I think our our powerful kids, this is true for every kid, but especially these powerful ones who are forging their own paths, sometimes they need a mentor who is not mom and dad because sometimes mom and dad don't know how to guide some of these kids who are off into these different paths and things that you're not used to or not accustomed to. I heard a, a nice story one time about the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. He remembered a valuable lesson he learned at the age of nine one day when he was on a walk with his uncle. His uncle was a no-nonsense, black-and-white, serious kind of guy. They were walking through the woods, and they came to this big snow-covered field, and they walked across. When, when they got to the other side, his uncle stopped stopped Frank and said, Look back at our two sets of tracks. Can you see how your footprints go aimlessly back and forth? They go from the, the trees over to the right and back to the, the, looking at the cattle on the left. Then you went, went way over the other side. You were throwing sticks over there. He said, that was your path. He said, now notice how my path comes straight across directly to my goal. Frank, never forget this lesson. And Frank didn't. Frank said he never forgot the lesson. But the lesson he didn't forget was different than his uncle's intention. Because Frank determined right then and there to never miss out on most things in life as his uncle had. He wanted to form his own path and to not be guided by a straight line. He wanted to be able to meander and do his own thing. Our kids need mentors sometimes who can guide them. You may have a child in your home who's strong-minded, spirited and all that, who has different energy than you have, different interests than you have. I've counseled a lot of girls in my counseling practice who feel different than their families and feel like their families don't get them, don't see them, don't understand them, and thus don't know how to support them. I read a story one time about the Sufi saint Shams of Tabriz. He said he was always considered a misfit as a kid. His father told him he wasn't crazy enough to be put into a madhouse, but he didn't know what else to do with him. So Shams told his father this story. He said, a a duck's egg somehow found its way under a hen, and when the egg hatched, the little duckling walked around with his mother hen and the chicks. One day they walked by a pond, and this little duckling went straight into the water. His mother, the hen, stayed clucking anxiously on the shore. Shams said to his father, I have walked into the ocean, and I find it my home. You can hardly blame me if I choose to stay, if you choose to stay on the shore. I have walked into the ocean and find it my home. You can hardly blame me if you choose to stay on the shore. That's why I hear from lots of these strong-minded, spirited kids is that sometimes their parents don't get them and don't know how to support them. And so they sometimes kind of squish them into a path that they want their kid to stay on, which is not going to be their path. And these kids feel constricted. They feel contained. Some of them fight it and some of them give in. I heard about uh, this uh, eaglet one time. The egg of an eagle somehow found its way into the corner of a barn where a hen was hatching her own eggs. And soon this little baby eaglet was hatched along with the other chickens. As time passed by, the eaglet began to experience this intense longing to fly. So she would ask her mother, the hen, when can I learn to fly? Well, the poor mother hen had no ability to fly, nor the slightest idea about how to teach a bird to, to fly. But she was ashamed to admit this. So she would say, Not yet, my child. Not yet. I'll teach you when you're ready. Well, months passed and more months passed and the young eagle began to suspect that his mother did not know how to fly. But she could not get herself to break loose and fly on her own because her keen longing to fly had become confused with the gratitude she felt towards the bird that had hatched her. I don't want your spirited kids to lose out on their passion, their dreams, because we don't understand their passion and their dreams. I want them to be able to find their path. I don't want them making choices in their life based upon not wanting to disappoint you, not wanting to displease you, or not doing things to to please you. I've seen a lot of adults who have done that, and they end up being miserable adults because they're not doing their life. They're doing it because everybody else is. They're making choices along the way because everybody else does. I want your daughters, the spirited ones, to be able to forge their own path. I want that. I want you to give them the autonomy to find and follow their own interests and passions, even if they're far different than your own. And it can be scary because it's, it's, it's uh, an area where maybe you don't have much confidence in, or much information about, or maybe you don't understand. Thus, sometimes the importance of mentors. Allow them to to solve their own problems, find their own path. And this is going to sound a little bit blunt, but I'm going to finish this podcast right now with a statement. Sometimes the best thing you can do for some of these spirited kids who are not vanilla like their family is, who are Neapolitan, and who have always been kicking at the slats of their corral, sometimes the best thing you can do for them is to stay out of their way. And let them find their own path. This might be one of those podcasts you listen to with your daughter. Because the stories are fun. And it also it might provoke some discussions about who they are. And and about maybe some places where they want more say-so, more control, more autonomy, more power. And I would listen. I would listen and listen and create a dance with them where you can step back and allow them that autonomy and allow them choices and decision-making, but also make sure your needs for their safety are also heard and met. You can find that middle ground if if you're open to it. I think if you listen first to your daughters, they'll be much more likely to listen to you about their needs. I appreciate you, you passing these podcasts on. A number of people who are listening to this podcast has gone up A lot in the last six months. I appreciate that. Um, Check out my website at www.drtimjordan for more information about the things I offer. I was thinking especially about highlighting today uh, my latest book is called She Leads. It's about how do you raise a daughter to be a leader? How do you raise a daughter who who will keep their power, find their own path, etc.? I think you'll find lots of ideas in that book about how you can raise a girl to to keep her power, to keep her strength, to find her own path, and to forge her own way. I'll be back here with a new podcast in in a week. Thanks so much for stopping by.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me